Inflation is skyrocketing, and that's not a good thing. Next is what you need to know and how to manage around it. Welcome to Culture Shift, the Barry Ferris Show. We are living in an American culture that has shifted from tolerant to cancel culture, from decent to rude, from optimistic to cynical, and from relatively safe to increasingly violent. But it's not too late. I hope to equip you with a historical framework applied to current events so you can lead and get America back on track for good. Hey, welcome back to The Barry Ferris Show. Here's a crazy thing. A used car is known to be a depreciating asset. Yet, since January 2020, used car prices are up 16.7%, according to Wall Street Journal. In fact, I'm a living testament to the statistic. I just bought a used work van for one of my businesses. So back in January, it would have cost me about $3,000 less, and I wouldn't have had to ship it 322 miles. But in the huge metro of the Phoenix area, they just didn't have any of those particular vans available. This is what happens when too many dollars are chasing too few products. Retail price data uh, sets will show you that consumer goods have risen in excess of 10% over the last year. Seafood has risen 18.7% in the past three months. What, are the fish harder to catch now? No, there's reasons for this current run of inflation. Number one, pent-up consumer demand. You know, people were told to lock up, and the folks that actually did lock up and are now venturing out, adding to the folks that already ventured out, and they're deciding they want to buy stuff. So that's one. Another thing is unearned money. When, when you get money that you didn't earn, you, you tend, on average, to spend it in ways that are different than just investing and saving. So that first check last year in 2020, some argue, I, even though I disagree, that it was necessary. But this last spat of free money went to many who were documented, documented to not need it. Number three. In theory, the inflation could be just related to this high demand and tight supply in a temporary way right now. And so what a lot of people are hoping for is that that's the case. But there are a couple things to consider that may mean the higher prices are permanent. Number one, governments around the world are proposing higher taxes. They're proposing carbon taxes, value-added taxes, higher corporate income taxes. Those are all inflationary. And that's because those tax costs are passed on to consumers. The quantity of new money in the financial system is, is crazy. I mean, we are having massive increases in government spending. We just spent $1.9 trillion, and that included checks up to $2,800 for a couple and totally forgivable loans for small businesses and extended unemployment and more. And this is after spending $2.2 trillion last year under the previous administration. That's in 2020. But the real number is actually much higher when you factor in the risk-free economic injury disaster loans that were given to really big businesses and other behind-the-scenes stimulus that came from the federal government. So how does the Fed pull this off? I mean, when, when the national debt goes up, what the Federal Reserve does is they just print more money. Here's a proof. Last year, the Fed, their own balance sheet, doubled. That's double the money sloshing around. Did we double in the amount of goods? In fact, the Fed is printing more money now than ever before, except for 1943, and we were fighting World War II then. So what happens when the Fed just prints trillions of new dollars in one year, doubling their balance sheet? That excess money creates inflation. Think about it this way. If you've got um, the same amount of goods, but you have twice the amount of money chasing those goods, the prices of those goods goes up. 
guys. So why does why doesn't the Fed uh, just raise rates and slow things down? I mean, a lot of people would argue that that would be fair. It'd be a reasonable thing to do. You might not like it if you're buying a house, but it would be honest to what's happening right now. By raising rates, it would tell the market to cool down. It would cause consumers to spend less money. Um, you wouldn't buy a house that's a stretch and prices would stabilize. But the Fed won't raise rates. I'm going to give you a real world example. A young couple can afford a $400,000 house if they have a credit for a 3.8% mortgage right now and a 20% down payment. And they can pay, because of their income, $1,750 a month to their mortgage lender. People don't buy a house based on the price of the house as much as they do it on the interest rate. And here's an example. So that same house, uh, well, you can't get that same house. If you raise the rates to 5.8% on that same person, that same couple, they can now only afford not a $400,000 house, but now they're down to a $330,000 house by going up two percentage points. So everything else is run the same way of having low interest rates. If, if, the, if the Fed raised rates more than a token, let's just say 0.5%, uh, financial markets would collapse if they went up to, let's say, 5%. If the Fed raised rates to 6%, um, real estate prices would plummet. If they went up to 7%, the US government probably would default on its own debt. And I'll explain in just a minute why that's the case. So you would think the logical thing for Congress would be to just kind of take a chill pill to put the brakes on spending. No, the POTUS and the Democrat Congress have asked for more spending. They want as much as 11 trillion more dollars in spending. I mean, spending is already out of control. And this latest round of potential spending is beyond the pale. But back to the Fed. They're sort of boxed in. They can't really be honest with the market and increase rates. They can't do that without risking really a total meltdown. And that's because they've pushed the envelope so far already. Rates are already close to zero. So how did all this crazy ideology from really smart people get kicked into gear? I mean, what's their logic? Well, they view their decision kind of like this. For every dollar the government spends, some of it will weave its way back into the pocket of people or companies who are also taxpayers in some form. And to the extent that that's true, the IRS gets back some of the very money that they spent in the form of tax payments. And they believe that government spending will help the economy grow. Now, I don't think you can prove that. I don't think that's necessarily true, but it is their logic. And they reason, to the extent that spending does help the economy grow, that's more money that you didn't previously have that you can now tax. Now, if the federal government had a balanced budget requirement, which I think should be a requirement, they could just spend the amount that they collect in tax dollars and everything would be fine. But they always, always spend more than they take in. So how do you do that? I can't spend more than I take in without going bankrupt eventually. Well, they've got this powerful central bank that can grease the skids and manipulate the situation and allow them to basically have unlimited debt. And, and they get this money from anyone, anywhere in the world. Now, it's usually in the form of a government bond or a T-bill. It's basically a promise backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government to pay you back over a certain time period at a certain rate, usually a very low interest rate. And it's different than the FDIC where you might have a, a limit of 250000 bucks that's guaranteed. You can put millions or billions invested in government bonds, and they will promise to pay you back. So you lend the government money, and the government pays it back to you over time. What's the Fed do with this money? Well, for one, it fills the gap of their overspending. They're not bringing in enough money in taxes, but they've got money here. If the government didn't spend more than it takes in taxes, the Fed would be a more limited 
organization, which would be good. But that never happens. We always spend more than we take in. So how does the Fed pull this off? Let's say they uh, issued you a bond for a thousand bucks and they agree to pay you interest of 1.7% over the next 10 years. A pretty lousy interest rate, but that's pretty much the best you're gonna do. I mean, over 30 years, you're gonna get 2.4% right now. That's a joke. So let's go back to the 1.7%, not to confuse things. So you got a thousand dollars, you've invested with the feds. They're gonna give you 1.7% or they're gonna give you 17 bucks a year. And then after 10 years, they'll pay you back that thousand dollars. So the Fed sloshes out of that thousand bucks about $700 to cover overspending. Sometimes it's less, sometimes more. Some form of government spending, whether on defense, which is necessary, or a silly social program. The money is spent or invested. So let's say they spend 700 and they have 300 left to actually invest. The Fed actually invests. They're not great at it, but they invest. And let's say on the 300 dollars that they invest, they average a 3% return. Well, they got $9, 300 times 3% of that 17 bucks from the investment. And so they can pay you interest on that. Now, how, how does it make up the difference? You still got 17 bucks total interest to pay. Well, it's counting on some of that coming right back in the form of more tax revenues. The IRS gets about 17% in taxes. Many pay zero, the middle pay a chunk, and the upper class pay a lot more, but it averages about 17%. The Fed thinks to itself, hmm, self, if you're the Fed, if I issue a government bond, I get money now and I have to pay it back later, but I also get 17% of the amount that was actually related to government spending that ends up being taxed. So in our example, the $700 went to spending. And let's say out of that, only $50 increased the income of taxpayers directly, some kind of a payment to a defense contractor or to anyone. So let's just say only 50 of the 700 went directly to taxpayers who were going to pay taxes on that. And let's say they average only 17%. 50 times 17% is $8.50. There you have it. It's magical. $8.50 plus $9 covers the interest payments. And you even have 50 cents left over. You're brilliant, you Fed central banker, you. But wait a minute. The government still owes you, you, the government still owe the investor, $1,000. The above scenario only covers the interest on the $1,000 that you, as an investor, lent the government. How are they gonna pay you that $1,000 back? Amazingly, the Fed still doesn't blush. They actually don't have the money right now to pay you back based on the scenario I just described, but they say they'll pay you back the principal from what they did to help make the economy grow. They believe all their interest rate manipulation will stimulate economic growth, and with more growth, you have even more money to tax, and you pay off the principal, they pay off the principal to you with that. Now, has that ever happened? Well, why don't you go to usdebtclock.org and check out whether that debt clock ever goes down. It never goes down. The government never pays down principal on their debt. They ignore this issue. They are super duper proud of how smart they are. They paid you your interest back and it hardly cost a thing. I'll admit they're smart and they have figured out a way to pay you your interest back, but the debt, 
That $1,000 you invested keeps climbing. They just pay that off with somebody else that invested in them later in that 10th year. This vicious cycle also explains why the Fed is more motivated than your mortgage banker to have low rates. It explains why they, or we, the people, have been able to kick the can down the road for all these years with such reckless, exorbitant level of spending and increased debt with seemingly very little price to pay. So, back to the inflation issue. The government just can't possibly afford to pay a higher interest rate. I mean, it, it has to keep interest rates low for its own debt payments. And business people know this. Now, there's a difference between what a big business thinks and what entrepreneurs focus on when it relates to inflation. Both of them think about it, they're both nervous about it, but they kind of look at it differently. Big business looks globally, and they're more concerned about mass layoffs on the other side of inflation. That's extremely expensive. It doesn't really mind regulations um, because as much as small business does, because the big business has a team to manage around those rules, and it actually helps keep their prices up because it makes it harder for the small guy to compete. The entrepreneur looks at things a little differently. He's really close to the customer. That's how he's able to succeed against big business. Can the customer afford my product at a normal profit, he asks. Um, this includes all the financing costs. And that's whether you're swapping out an air conditioner in your home or re renovating a kitchen or anything, um, or if you're buying a new house. And, and for years, if you've got good credit, I mean, you can get near zero financing. You can get an air conditioner for almost nothing and not pay for anything for a year. So why the heck not buy the upgrade? When inflation comes along, the business has to pass its increased cost through to its customers. So the entrepreneur thinks about that. His question is, are they making enough more money to keep up with inflation? Can they absorb the increased cost of goods that I'm selling? I mean, the business has now an inventory decision to make that it used to not have to make. Uh, how much uh, do I need to buy now versus wait until the customer is going to need it? Because if there's inflation, I might have a shortage. And if prices are going up, I might need to buy more now to lock in that price. And now I've got to think about storing it and the cost of storing it in a warehouse. And that's not a cost I want to bear. I, I don't want to become a warehousing whiz. I, I'd rather focus on my business. But now I've got to focus on gambling on how much to buy. So when there's not too much inflation, the business can be, I guess, more healthy, more intelligent in terms of its decision-making, drive to just-in-time inventory and have a healthier business model. So the entrepreneur asks a simple question. At what point will the market force a correction? How can they, the government, keep getting away with kicking the can down the road? That's what inflation does. It forces the Fed's hand in a way. I mean, how else do you cool the economy down, though? And how do you cool the economy down without killing it? And with the U.S. debt now at $28.3 trillion, 127% of our GDP, what is next? I mean, when does it have to pay up? That's what the entrepreneur is asking. So what about this whole recent rise in inflation? I mean, year over year, consumer prices just came out. The April numbers, the consumer price index rose 4.2%. That's, that's much worse than they were predicting. But it's much worse than that. That's because when that's looking back 12 months, and most of that was in the last three months. And most of that was in the last month, April. And in April, we went up 0.8%. You multiply that by 12, that's 9.6%. So the look back rate is less than half of what the real rate is right now going forward. Some think that the best we can hope for is a permanently higher plateau of prices. In other words, once prices climb, the Federal Reserve will never let prices fall. And why is that? 
Well, that's because falling prices or deflation is really a central banker's nightmare, especially in a heavily indebted economy. And ours is way off the charts. It reflects a weakening economy when prices deflate. And economists actually fear a de deflation. And that's because it leads to lower consumer spending, lower consumer confidence, businesses slow down, their production layoffs happen, and social unrest. And if you think the social unrest last year when the economy was booming looked bad, I shudder to think what would happen this time. And the Fed won't be able to pay you back your interest. But the overspending and central bank manipulation is not the only reason for inflation. Right now, there are still over 9 million Americans unemployed. And right now, companies are scrambling to hire people. Why? They can't find people to even show up for an interview. Why is that? The, the Bureau of Labor Statistics says that 25% of U.S. job openings are right now going unfilled. And they're increasing their wages to try to encourage people to come and show up. Dishwashers in California are being paid $21 an hour. From Amazon to Walmart to McDonald's, they're all raising their pay and trying to entice employees while concurrently warning their customers that price increases are on the way. And Coca-Cola and Kimberly Clark and Procter and & Gamble and Hershey's and Clorox and Shake and Shack and Whirlpool and a whole bunch more already have publicly announced to their consumers price increases. And here's a really big problem. Prospective employees aren't getting off the couch. Now, there's some GOP-run states that are trying to counter this issue by dropping the extra incentive to stay home. But as of now, many people are not working even with ample jobs. And why is that? Well, we made unemployment just too easy to get with no accountability and way too rich. And so the logical thing for many people is just stay home. I'll give you an example. You can get an extra $15,000 as an annualized benefit through September from the stimulus package. And the first $10,200 of that is tax-free. And two out of five people receiving that unemployment benefit earns more now than they did in their previous job. Number two, eviction protection. I, I just talked to a major property manager of apartments and, and asked what their delinquency rate is. This isn't national, but theirs, and they have a lot all across the country. They specialize in quality and luxury apartments. They're huge. And they're sitting at the highest delinquency ever, 42%. They're trying to keep quiet about it. But you can't evict anyone for non-payment until September. Four out of 10 so a lot of people are making more money not working, and they're not paying rent, living for free at a nice apartment. And what about that honest wage earner? He'll make more money now than last year, but that could be canceled out by a permanent spike in prices. In other words, you're an honest wage earner, you're going to work, you might make $4,000 more this year than you did last year, but it might cost you $6,000 more to live at the same level. And what happens when the unemployment benefits expire? Will these people who have established habits around a semi-retired lifestyle be able to handle the rigor of a work schedule? And what happens when the four in 10 that aren't paying rent get evicted in September? So we have a potential mess and a collision on our hands. And all this is to make a point. There's an obtuse and ineffective impact of an overreaching government. And an overreaching government has harmful consequences. When government gets involved, it usually costs more, takes longer, and accomplishes less. If Congress had not rammed through the latest stimulus bill, which had zero bipartisan support, we may have dodged a bullet from the 2020 stimulus package. The economy was strong enough. 
But the latest round seemed wholly political. It allocated billions to reward irresponsible state governments. It did very little to target actual needs. And in the case that it did, it overstimulated. In big picture terms, what the government should do is quit spending money that's way outside their jurisdiction. Adopt a balanced budget requirement. Quit manipulating the market. Reduce the scope of the Fed. Stabilize prices. Be honest and have a more humble view of itself. I'll, I'll let you guys fix all those problems. And while you're fixing all those things, I've got a thought for you about what you can do now to avoid fear and keep your joy. You know, I was in high school the last time inflation was this bad. And I built a landscaping company and, and earned a really good chunk of change before college. So number one, earn as much as you can. Don't let any grass grow under your feet. Maybe some of your competitors are staying home. Earn as much as you can. Save as much money as you can. And be selective about investing in real assets. Don't chase fads, but a real asset that has some special value. Think in terms of the asset that's got a scarcity to it, something that's limited. There's so many, so many houses along a river, for example. Go with special scarce assets. Fewer of those um, is better than a broad number of assets that have no distinctiveness to them. And then you look at ways to become a scarce resource yourself. That is the best security you can provide yourself. Develop your skills to be exceptional at your career, making yourself a high value and scarce asset. Well, I'm praying for your success and your freedom. And I'm praying that government will be less careless and less overreaching and that you, as a contributor to your own success and that of the country, will find joy in becoming a hard-to-duplicate asset. Well, that's all for now. God bless you. Until next time. Hi, I'm David Farah. Thank you for listening to my dad's podcast, The Barry Farah Show, Culture Shift. Click subscribe now to be sure you don't miss an episode. Share this podcast with your friends on social media and give The Barry Ferris Show your five-star rating. Check out today's show notes below this episode and at theberryferrisshow.com. This podcast is also available in video format at The Barry Ferris Show on YouTube. See you next time.